0: Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 20, page 243 in the Church Bible. 1 Samuel chapter 20. As we finish out our sermon series on 1 Samuel, we've been asking two questions almost every week What kind of a person do I need to be to see God's kingdom advance through me? And what kind of a church? It's the corporate people of God today. What kind of people do we need to be to see the kingdom of God advance uh, today? And this morning, as we look at 1 Samuel 20, we are going to see two sets of commitments. The first thing we're going to see is a set of commitments that David and Jonathan make with one another that are going to really challenge us and, and, and probably force us to ask the question... Are we making the kind of commitments to each other, but are we making the commitments to God's kingdom and to one another in light of God's kingdom in an appropriate manner? That's the first set of commitments we need to look at in the text, but we're also going to see in the text that we need to see simultaneously with the commitments we might need to make or remake is we need to see the commitments that God has made to us as God's people. In a very real sense, we need to see Both of those things together in order to be the kind of people, both individually and corporately, that are seeing the name of God, the reputation of God extended and deepened in the world. Now, I I, I realize, I I say this a bunch, I I realize most of us live in and around Princeton. So I'm not that nervous that you're going to, that you all are going to not do things. Okay. All right. I worry a little bit that you're going to do too much. Okay, that's one problem you have. But but I, I assume that you're, you're going to be very busy and be very goal-oriented. But my fear is, just as my favorite uh, professor at Dallas Seminary used to say, I don't fear that you will fail, but I fear that you will succeed at doing the less important things. You succeed at doing the wrong things. Now, I know all about this. I've got a lot of accomplishments that... Uh, you know, really weren't that great for humanity or for the kingdom of God, but they were accomplishments. I remember very vividly as a third grader, I was eight years old, I was at a Christian camp in the Adirondacks, In New York and they had this game they they had competitions all week I was on a team and we were gaining points throughout the week and they had this really really important game and I was new to the camp but it was a game where the girls would all hide in the gymnasium we in the gymnasium and the guys would hide all over the camp the girls would then be released at a certain point and have about an hour and a half to tag as many boys as they could. They got points for their teams. And the night before this big competition, my friend was telling me about this and it, it became very clear to me that my entire honor as a human being was at stake in this game that was coming up. If I were to be tagged by another girl and lose points for my team, that would be the worst thing that could ever happen to me. And so that's the way I approached this. And then my friend of mine who had been to the camp before said, I know exactly where to hide. No one will ever come to us. So I hid with him. And we could see down the hill to the gymnasium. I kid you not, the first 15 girls that came out of that gymnasium went right up to where we were. And within a minute and a half of the game, I am running around like crazy, about to be tagged. And my whole future of my entire life is hanging by a thread. And I'm dodging and I'm weaving and I'm moving and girls are chasing me and and I'm running down and I run behind the kitchen of the, the, the complex there. And in the back of the kitchen, I forgot about this, but they told us not to go near that because they had a sewage problem at the camp that summer and it was a sewage pool. Well, that was no obstacle because my whole life hung in the balance and I ran straight for the sewage pool. I jumped, dive, dove in, swam across. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't, don't say that. And I was not tagged. That's the important part of this story. I was not tagged. My life's future was intact. I didn't smell good for a couple days, but I was not tagged. Tagged. And that's my fear for us is that you're going to accomplish things, but accomplish things that really are not central to God's kingdom. And in this text, we are going to see an example, actually multiple examples of significant commitments being made for God's kingdom that will challenge where our commitments ought to be. But at the same time, we need to see the commitments that God has made to us in order to motivate us to make these commitments for God in his kingdom. But let's look at the first set of commitments, the commitments to God's kingdom that we need to make. And uh, let me just give you a little bit of background for 1 Samuel before we see uh, these first set of commitments that uh, uh, challenge us and our commitments to God's kingdom. In 1 Samuel 20, David is on the run from Saul. In chapter 19, if you want to read that this afternoon, Saul tries to kill David multiple times in 1 Samuel 19. He actually instructs his son Jonathan and his servants to kill David. So David is on the run, and David ends up trying to find protection and solace in Jonathan, the son of the king who's trying to kill him. Kind of an interesting The approach that David takes, and that's what you read through in the first uh, verses of 1 Samuel 20. Let me just kind of walk you through the first 11 verses to give you some backdrop here. Then David fled from Nahoth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, what have I done? What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? David doesn't understand. Why is your father, the king of Israel, trying to kill me? Now, you remember, David has already been anointed as the next king of Israel. But Saul is trying to kill him and end that part of God's plan for God's kingdom. Verse 2, and he said to him, far from it, you shall not die. This is Jonathan speaking. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan tries to assure David, says, surely my dad will tell me if he's going to harm you. Well, he's already trying to harm him. In verse 4, Jonathan says to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. Jonathan is committing himself to do whatever it's going to take to protect David in this situation from Jonathan's own father. And then what David describes to him is the a little test case that they're going to do to see if Saul is still murderous in his thoughts toward David. Verse 5, David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David, earnestly ask leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city for there, there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. They have a little test. David is not going to attend the normal new moon festival. He's going to be absent. And if Saul is angry about that, that's bad news. If if Saul is not angry about that, then then maybe Saul has changed his determination to kill David. Now in verse 8, David says this, therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And then Jonathan said to David, come, let's go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. What you see here is David has gone to Saul's son, Jonathan, who has been instructed to kill David to find solace and protection from Jonathan. And what they mention in verse 8 is that Jonathan and David have entered into a covenant together. They have made commitments to one another. And that is why David feels assured that Jonathan will protect him, even though he has fears. Given what Saul has just done, now what I wanted to show you is the beginning of that covenant, the beginning of those commitments that were made between David and Jonathan. I want to go to uh, just turn over a couple of chapters to First Samuel eighteen, and I want you to see this amazing commitment that Jonathan makes to David. It's the beginning of this covenant relationship that they've entered into. First Samuel eighteen, David has just slain Goliath. We pick it up in verse one. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul, the king, took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And at that point, David was made part of the court of King Saul. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, what is going on here here is one of the most amazing examples of commitment to God's kingdom and to another person in God's kingdom that you will ever see. Jonathan was Saul's son. Jonathan would have expected to succeed his father as the next king of Israel. That was his rightful place. That was his future. That's, that in some sense, it was his right because when God chose Saul to lead the, the, the nation and chose Saul's family to lead, but Saul has forfeited that reign by his family in Israel. And God has taken the throne from Saul and his family and he's going to give it to David. But Jonathan would have expected that. Jonathan would have, would have been sort of banking on that in some sense. And what you see when Jonathan takes his robe and gives it to David, and gives his armor to David, and gives his belt, and his bow, and his sword. Jonathan is signifying that he accepts. God's new plan for who would lead Israel, which would not include him, but would be David. He is acknowledging that David is the rightful throne, and Jonathan is giving up his position, his right, his hope, his dream, his identity, giving it over to David and saying, I will follow your will, Lord. I will follow your will for who should lead this nation. I give up my Place to rule and reign and I give it to David because that's your choice and I will do whatever I can to support your choice for the next king of Israel. That's astonishing. That's amazing. You will never get another example as powerful and as big to see a, a follower of God giving up his, his identity and purpose and future, his rightful place, so to speak, And through no fault of his own, that future has been forfeited, not by Jonathan, but by his father. And David willingly, uh, Jonathan willingly hands that over because Jonathan is more committed to the kingdom of God than he is to his own dreams, his own hopes, his own rightful place, so to speak. God's kingdom is far more important to Jonathan than anything else. Now, that's amazing. But there's more here. Verse 12. Let's see this commitment developed a little further. Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness when I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day. Behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? In other words, Jonathan saying, David, if my father is not not angry with you anymore, I'm going to let you know. Verse 13. But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan is saying, if the word, the news is bad for my father, if he still has murderous thoughts towards you, I will warn you, I will protect you. Verse 14. Now Jonathan begins to ask a commitment of David. Jonathan says this, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. What Jonathan is alluding to here, it would be normal now that Saul's son, Jonathan, is not going to be king. It would be normal when David became king that David would eliminate all of the enemies of his reign, all of the enemies of his rule, which would include Jonathan and Jonathan's family. If you read through the Old Testament, you will see a number of kings upon their accession to the throne. They eliminate any rivals to the throne. Jonathan is acknowledging that that God is going to deal with David's enemies, but he's talking to David instead saying, when you become king, when God elevates you to the throne, please remember me and do not purge me and my family from the face of the earth. Even though we are from this other family. And of course, David would have had reason to do this. Remember Saul? He's trying to kill David. David would have probably legitimate reason to to be concerned about anyone from Saul's family. And Jonathan says, David, please show me the love of uh, the steadfast love of the Lord, and not purge me or my family if we're still alive when you become king. And David is going to honor that. Jonathan will die before before David uh, 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 takes the throne. But there's a a son called Mephibosheth that, that David will care for. And that will become a complicated relationship down the road. So there's some cost to David even in making that commitment. In verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So here you see this commitment These commitments that that each man is making to each other, but the commitments they're making in light of God's kingdom, Jonathan with his amazingly uh, uh, costly commitment that he's making to David in light of God's kingdom. Now, verses 18 to 23, David and Jonathan are going to have the secret signaling plan, and middle school boys love this kind of thing, so you can look at that this afternoon. But I want to take you down to 24 because... Jonathan's commitment to David is tested in a profound way, even further. Verse 24, David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite. Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. This was their plan. Yet Saul did not say anything that day. for Saul thought something has happened to David. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, "'Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today?' And Jonathan answered Saul, "'David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, "'Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city. And my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table.'" Now, some of you are going to be very bothered by this, and maybe you should because David's not telling the truth here, and there's a pretext. It's interesting when you read the book of First and Second Samuel, David seems to, to do this less and less because he learns to trust God more and more. God seems to work with this, and again, David is under, he's under duress because he's being, he's being attempted to be killed by King Saul. So God sort of condescends to this. They've set the situation up, Jonathan and David, just like they said, and now we're going to see Saul's reaction, and it's, amazing, it's unbelievable. Verse 30, then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. and He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan appeals to his father. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, ate no food for the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Notice what King Saul has done here. On the one hand, what King Saul has done here is he's, he's trying to make his son Jonathan choose between your own glory as the next king of Israel or, or doing what God had decreed who would be the next king and protect David. It was like, save yourself or be all in on God's kingdom. But then notice what he does with Jonathan's mother, Saul calls out Jonathan and basically says that if you continue to support God's kingdom, and by definition supporting David, who is going to be the next king of Israel, you are shaming your mother. And the word picture there is not particularly pleasant. Here, it, 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 it was a vile uh, picture of what Saul is saying Jonathan is doing, and he's basically Saul is saying to Jonathan, choose between. David and God's kingdom and the honor of your own mother. Now, we as Westerners in our individualistic society might not understand how unbelievably difficult this was for Jonathan. There was a study done, as these studies are often done. I read it about 10 years ago. It was a study that that, that basically has a man in a boat. His daughter, his wife, and his mother are also in the boat. And as these silly surveys go, the way the thing goes is, is you're, you're out in the middle of the ocean. Your mom, your daughter, your wife are in the boat. You can only save one of them, guys. Which one are you going to save? This is a survey that no man should ever take or make public what you say, okay? The answer, guys, is you will jump out, okay? And then let the three women figure out who's going to stay in that boat, okay? Okay? What's interesting about this little survey is in the West, okay, in the West, the two dominant answers are are not the moms. Oh, moms, I'm sorry, right? Most Western men are going to save either their wife or their daughter. Now, I feel bad saying this illustration because my mom is in the audience today. And all I can say to you, mom, is I hope you can tread water for a very long time (laughs) because because I grew up in the West. What's interesting, when they gave this survey to Middle Eastern men, the one answer that was bigger than all the other answers is a Middle Eastern man was far more likely to save one person than that would be his mom. Wife and daughter. Hope you had swimming lessons, right? I don't think we fully understand the pressure that Jonathan faces not only does he have to make it a commitment for God and his kingdom that, that, that strips him of his rightful place as the next king of Israel, he has to give up that place and that honor and that future that he thought was his through no fault of his own, by the way. But then his own father puts him in a bind by saying, basically, you're choosing between yourself and God's kingdom, but then says you have to choose between the honor of your mother and the kingdom of God and David. It's abusive, really. Spiritually abusive. That's where Saul was at this time. And remarkably, Jonathan himself makes a decision at great personal cost to himself to side with God's kingdom and with David. In spite of his father's attempting to shame him and the honor of his mother, in spite of his father's trying to put it before him, it's either your future or, or the kingdom of God and David. And Jonathan shows us the way forward of making the kind of costly commitment to God and his kingdom that we need to do as well. So, the question for each of us. I've had all week to think about it, so I've got some ideas for myself. But what has God been nudging you to do for his kingdom that you've just failed to do? Well, what is something God's been asking you to make? You, you know God had the, the, a commitment that he wanted to push you for or, or an endeavor that you should be involved in or a ministry you should be involved in or, or maybe being in a small group. Next week is Small Group Sunday. There's a small commitment. I mean, it's not, like, not the kind of commitment Jonathan made, but it, but it will be difficult. To meet with a group of sinners (laughs) in your small group for the next year. To get to know them, have them get to know you. To be involved in a ministry that maybe God's been nudging you to and you just haven't pulled the trigger. Maybe God's asking you to do something in his word that might be very difficult. I suspect no one has to make as big a decision as Jonathan had to make here. but, But some might. And the question is, are we prepared to make the kind of commitment to God and his kingdom or to commit ourselves to another believer in light of God's kingdom? Are we willing to make whatever commitments we need to make to see the kingdom of God extend and deepen? That's the first set of commitments we need to take a look at. But there's a second set of commitments that we need to look in the text. And that all has to do with God's commitment to us. And we see it alluded to in verse 14. This is back in chapter 20, verse 14. Jonathan is asking David not to eradicate him and his family when David becomes king. And what he says in verse 14 is instructive. He says, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. I think what Jonathan is indicating here is that he recognizes that the commitment that David and Jonathan have entered into, the foundation of that commitment is the steadfast love of the Lord. When Jonathan is asking for treatment of his family and of himself, where, where the steadfast love of David, but, but, but that that love would be like the steadfast love of the Lord. He's calling on the reality that behind all of our commitments to follow God and serve God stem from the first commitment that God has made to us. And God has poured out his steadfast love on us. I mean, in just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate Communion. I'm going to say the same words that Jesus said at the, at the first, you know, at the, the, the Lord's table, the very first one. I'm going to say, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. For the forgiveness of your sins, it reminds us that, that what did God do for us? What was his commitment to us? He shed his blood. He poured out his life for us. And he poured out his love for us, not because we earned that love, not because we performed for that love, not because we, we, we should have his love. He graciously poured out that love through the death of his son. And we are simply asked to receive that gift, to believe what he did, to acknowledge what he did and to trust what he did by grace through faith. And that love, which we do not perform for, or we do not earn, is given to. Do you believe that? And then that love, it says it's called the steadfast love. It's called the loyal love. Once we enter into a relationship with God by grace, a gift, if you have a bad week spiritually, God doesn't say, oh, boy, that's it. Cutting my losses here. No, that steadfast love stays with you and he continues to pour out his love for you because once he's brought you to himself, he's not going to let you go. And it's only when we look at the, the steadfast love that God offers to us in Jesus Christ, it's only when we're overwhelmed by that that gives us the power and the motivation to make the kind of costly commitments for God and his kingdom and to one another in light of God's kingdom. If we have the full view of that steadfast love that God has poured out to us through Jesus Christ. I was in seminary. I had a lot of part time jobs. And one of the most interesting part time jobs I had was I worked in a halfway house. These were middle school boys who had all gotten in trouble with the law. And they now were in a halfway house where we were trying to help them and help them academically and socially and spiritually sort of learn what they needed to learn so they didn't have to go to juvenile detention center. And so I, I worked in this once a month. Denise and I actually were the house parents for the weekend while the regular house parents took the weekend off. And one weekend, we we had these boys, there was about 10 of them, and these guys were not the easiest guys to deal with, and they were starting to get out of control, and it was going south in in a big hurry. They were getting more and more rambunctious. They didn't follow the rules. I started to try to punish them and take points off their little sheets, which we had a big point system, and take the points off, and that wasn't working, and they got crazier and crazier, and basically there was a mutiny going on. I really thought Denise and I were going to be tied up, you know, waiting for the house parents to show up. And, of course, I had the nuclear option at my disposal. I could call the police at any time and say, I got 10 guys to pick up. They're right here. I could do that at any time, but that's not really what I wanted to do because the whole goal of the program was to get them out of the criminal justice system and get, get to a better place. So I did what lots of parents do. I made a threat I couldn't deliver on. I got angry. And I said, the next person who disobeys, you will swim laps in the pool. We had a little pool. Well, it's 40 degrees outside. These are not my children, okay? And maybe even if they were my children, not a good idea. These are wards of the county. This is, this is how people go to jail, okay? So now I don't know what to do. A lot of you parents, you've been in that situation, right? Will you threaten your child with something that you couldn't do? Well, that's where I was. And now I thought the situation is going to get worse when they find out I won't do what I said I was going to do. So I prayed a lot. Lord, help me. Uh, The next 30 minutes, they all had violated the rules. And so God gave me an idea and I started to try it. I got all the guys to come outside, put them in their swim trunks. And I said, okay, guys, you deserve to swim in a lap. You deserve to swim in the pool. You got to swim your lap in the pool. You have to do your punishment. But I said, if you want, I will swim the lap in your place well these guys are street smart right they're like what's the catch and they said what do you mean I said okay you can get in the pool and swim a lap or I can get in in the pool and swim in your place and take the punishment that you deserved on me if I do that you'll all go free really you're not going to call the police I'm not going to call the police so they huddled up and I could hear them going I don't know what we should do Should I go? Should we do it? I don't know. I think it's a trick. I don't trust this guy. I've never trusted him. They 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 didn't know what to do. Finally, they would said, okay, you swim for us. So I had my swim trunks underneath my jeans. I put on my swim trunks. I jumped in the pool. It was very cold. Yes, it was. It would have been illegal to have these kids swim. Yes, that was also true, but I swam the lap. I got done, and I came back, and I said, okay, guys, it's over. I paid the penalty. You're free. Come on in. They wouldn't come in. They were all sitting there out there, you know. I said, it's over. It's over. Come on in. They finally came in. And guess what? For the next three hours of the evening, they were the most well-behaved boys ever. They kept asking me, so it's over? You're not going to deduct any more points? No. I paid the penalty. I said what the penalty was. I paid the penalty. You're free. They were different. Now, I wish I could say they were different for the rest of their lives and They all went to college and got PhD. I I don't know what happened to them all, okay? But for three hours, they were different. Why were they different? Well, in some ways, they kind of had a little picture of the gospel thrown at them. And for us, when we take a look at the loyal, steadfast love that God has given to us by grace, we don't earn it, we don't perform for it, we simply receive it by faith. When we see that, when we, when we look at that, when we internalize that, there's not anything God couldn't ask us to do when we would do it. That's the nature of grace. And so this morning, as we celebrate the Lord's table, we invite anyone who's trusted Jesus Christ to partake of that of the bread and the cup, we hold on to them together, we partake of them together. When you take that bread and when you're reminded of what God did for you, how he demonstrated his steadfast love for you, how he sacrificed himself for you as you drink the cup and you remind yourself of the shed blood of Jesus Christ that cut the new covenant promises to you by God through grace. That is going to be the basis of you making the kinds of commitments that God may ask you to make for the sake and extension of his kingdom. So as you partake, may the commitments that God has made to you in his steadfast love motivate you to make the kinds of commitments like Jonathan did, costly, difficult, regular, to see the name and reputation of God deepen. As the ushers, as the uh, servers come forward to serve the elements, let's bow to the Lord and prepare for communion. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the loyal love, the steadfast, immovable love that we receive by grace, accomplished by your death on the cross. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see that today. Help us to see it during communion right now. Lord, as we see that steadfast love more clearly, I pray that we would make the kind of commitments we need to make for your kingdom. Whatever God directs us to do, I pray that we would make those commitments motivated by grace to see God's kingdom advance more deeply and more comprehensively in our midst and in this community. Help us to see you And to see that love and then give us the power to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in Jesus' name.